You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Got your Bibles. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jeff read that for us this morning, the first half of it. It is um, probably the uh, high... Watermark, the, uh, uh, the 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 peak of Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It is uh, what we look back on and we call the Davidic covenant. Uh, the word covenant isn't uh, used in this passage, but as David reflects on it several chapters later in chapter 23, he will call it an everlasting covenant, and you will find the language also in Psalm 89. So we know that what God is doing is making an everlasting and what we'll see very unconditional covenant with David. He is going to, as uh, Paul will say in Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, 60, grace upon grace he's going to be lavishing upon David. And it's all going to begin with a desire David has to do something for God as David looks around and sees all that God has done for him, David wants to, to do something back for God, and God will tell him, no, you're not going to do that for me. I'm going to actually do more for you. It's this perfect picture of grace as, as God overwhelms David in this chapter with grace, and it is the heart of the gospel that we speak about every single week. It's, it's the grace of God that overwhelms us where we are. It is not something we earn. It is not something we pay back. It is something God overwhelms us with to make us his own. And grace is very hard to receive. I don't know if you experience this in your life. I have certainly experienced it in my life. It is where I um, sort of betray the gospel in my life is the receipt of grace. I want things to be even. I want to be able to pay things back. I don't want to be on the, uh, the, the low end of a, of a scale and, and have to feel like I owe somebody. And I know all those things aren't true. It is my natural instinct. Several years ago, I um, was going to bed, and it was about 10 o'clock at night, <clears throat> and I told uh, Leslie, I was like, you know, I, don't, I just don't feel good. I don't feel right. I, I didn't know exactly what it was. Something was... I just knew something wasn't right, and I thought, well, maybe I just need to lay down, and I'll, you know, feel better in a minute. And I and I'd lay down, and I didn't feel better in a minute. In fact, I continued to feel worse, and I was having a hard time, sort of, putting my finger on, um, you know, what was actually going on, and I was feeling this, you know, this pain in my back, and I and so I d do what um, all of our doctors uh, want us to do. I I got on WebMD and began to uh, type in, you know, all my symptoms and, and what I was feeling and all. And, and it was, uh, so it was either nothing or I was uh, in my last moments of life, de depending on uh, where it was. So anyways, it's about 12.30, 1 o'clock, and I decide that, I, so I go and I wake Leslie up and I say to her, hey, listen, I'm not feeling good. I feel like really bad. I think I, I think I need to go to the hospital. One thing about this story: it was um, winter. It was January, and it had just started.
snowing that evening. In fact, it really was that drizzle. The roads were icy and full of snow. And um, and it was, you know, warm in the house and warm under the covers. I get all that. And her response was, look, you're going to be fine. Just take a shower. <laughs> I'm like, all right, maybe right. Maybe I just need to take a shower. I'll just shower will make it go away. So I, you know, I start to get in the shower and I'm like, what am I doing? I, I cannot do this. I mean, I'm, I can't walk upright anymore or anything like that. So I said, all right, honey, I'll see you later. I'm going to the hospital. And so I get in my truck at the time. I roll the windows down because I feel really sick. And I'm driving with my head laying on the, on the door with the window open, you know, 28 degrees or whatever. And I'm just driving, you know, and the wind's blowing in my face. And I think if I make it, to the hospital. That's you know that's my only goal, and I don't live very far away, and you know nobody was on the road because uh, they were icy. Get to the hospital, and I'm praying the whole time. Oh, I don't want to see anybody. I mean, I last thing I want to do is see anybody I know. I don't want to, you know, I don't want any. So I walk straight in, and the and the of course the girl that works there to to check people in, she goes to Bethel. And they take me back to the room, and the nurse is taking care of me in the ER. Of course, she goes to Bethel, and then they take me to the back to where, you know, they take pictures of your insides. And that person goes to Bethel, and it decides that I need to have surgery um, to have my gallbladder out, which I'd never known anything about that before, never had a gallbladder thing. I have to have emergency surgery, and so they call the surgeon, who also goes to Bethel. So I called Leslie at like 4.30 in the morning. I said, I'm sure sorry to wake you up. Um, but I'm, I'm going to have surgery. And I don't know where I, my truck's just sitting in the, you know, because you come move my truck sometime when you get up. And, uh, but I remember telling her, I was like, don't, please, don't, just don't tell anybody. You know, I don't want anybody to know that I'm here. And, um, of course, she does uh, tell everybody. And I go into surgery and come out of surgery, and I'm laying there. and It's like a Friday, and I'm thinking, well, good, I have a day, and then I can preach Sunday. And, uh, I mean, really, I was like, I don't want to put anybody out. I don't want anybody to know. This is just, I'll be in and out, you know. So uh, Dr. Albermite comes in. He's like, <laughs> No, you're not preaching Sunday. You can't do that. I said, no, I can. I really can. If I can just, you know, somebody help me off on the stage, I can just stand there. It'll be short. Everybody will be happy about that. And, uh, sure enough, about 6.15, 6.30 a.m., the Bolins come walking in, and I'm like, oh, no. And You know, I'm, I can never pay back this kindness. I can never pay back this grace. I am in this vulnerable place. I have nothing to give anybody, and all that I can do is sit there and just be a recipient of grace. That is where the gospel in my own life betrays me. It's hard to do that. It's hard to not think, well, I don't want you, I, you know, I've got to pay you back, although I know that's not what they mean, but there's this deep-seated need in me to keep score. I think there's this deep-seated need in us to make sure relationships or even, and, and yet when it comes to God, He resists every bit of that in us, and He resists it with His grace. 
The God of the universe, the one who with a word created the heavens and the earth, will not be paid back by those that he created and those that he loves. And so it is in the midst what we see, this Davidic covenant, this grace upon grace that God is going to lavish upon David, actually comes in response to a no that he tells David. So look with me in the first few verses. Uh, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So what, what we've got here is what the things that have happened since we last were in David's life last week. Uh, Samuel has died the end of, towards the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, Saul and Jonathan have both been killed on the battlefield. David will be now publicly anointed. He'll be consecrated as the king over Israel. There'll be a power play. One of Saul's sons says, no, I should be uh, the one that's the king. And so they have a little bit of a civil war for a couple of chapters. That gets snuffed out. In chapter 6, David, we'll look at that on Palm Sunday, will bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And here in Jerusalem, for the very first time, you have the uh, capital of Israel being set up under the United Kingdom of David. And you've got the Ark, which is the, the, you know, the, represents all the priestly uh, uh, line. And, and you have David as the king, and the, and the priests and the kings come together in Jerusalem under one place. And everything's united. And David's defeated the Philistines, and it says, listen, it, 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 he, God had given him rest. For ten years, David had been on the run. For ten years, he'd been in exile, and he'd been fighting enemies without and enemies within, and now it seems as though all the enemies for this time being are subdued, and David is here, and he's able to take a deep breath, if you will. And as he takes a deep breath and he is thinking about and remembering as he's enjoying this rest that God has provided him, his thoughts look around and go, well, here I am in Jerusalem. And I've built this, this big house. Look at what he says in, in verse 2. The king said to uh, Nathan the prophet, See now, I, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan knew what David was thinking. David, I know, man, you're living here, you're in rest, you're in the height of luxury, the house of cedar. It would have been brilliant. There's David, you know, seated in this, um, uh, in, in the picture, in the symbol of all that God's given him. And he looks around and goes, Man, this isn't right. I, I, I live in this great place, and God's provided all these things for me. And I, I need, I, I, I've got to do something for God. I'm going to build God a temple. Nathan says, that's right. That's good. Go and do that. You know, this, I, I think it's important to, to know, I mean, th this are, these are not impure motives of, of David. I mean, he, he, he looks and he says, well, I, I, I feel like I need to do something for, for God. You know, it was a custom back then in the ancient Near East that when kings conquered their land, the first thing they would do is they would build these enormous, uh, magnificent, imposing temples to their God. And so David likely 
knowing what the custom is in the ancient Near East, and just knowing that God, all that God had done for him, he says, this, this isn't right. Um, God's, God's living in a tent in my backyard. And that's not right. And so there's Nathan the prophet. We're introduced to Nathan here. He's, he's Nathan, he speaks for God. It's the first time we see him. He's essentially arrives here on the scene, but we, we discover he is uh, David's trusted counsel. He's his confidant. He's one of those. That, so we have Jonathan in 1 Samuel who is, you know, who's close to David. He's, he's the one that cares for David, and Jonathan's dead. And in 2 Samuel, you'll see Nathan come to the forefront. He's the one that speaks for God, for David. He's the one that stands as the great counsel. There are three moments we see Nathan, three big moments. One is here when he delivers this message from God. The second one is in 2 Samuel 12. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks where he's the one that confronts David, you know, with the two great sins, adultery and murder. And then in 1 Kings, well, we won't get to that, but in 1 Kings, after uh, David's dying and, and Solomon's going to be raised up, there's another son that, that makes a play for the kingdom and the kingdom will end up dividing a little bit later after that. But Nathan's there to, uh, to help uh, ensure Solomon sits on the throne. And so Nathan agrees. He says, look, we don't even need to pray about this. I mean, that's a good thing. You live in a house of cedar. God's in a tent. We should build God a house. But I want you to hear this. David's wish, it's a fine wish. It's a, it's a fine desire. There's nothing wrong with it um, in and of itself. It, it, it's this desire that rises out of the heart, and it becomes this first step but it is not the last word about it. Even David as the king is going to be subject to God. Now, there's a lot of things we could reflect upon here. There's a lot of application that we could make. The desires of our heart oftentimes are, are good desires. There are things that come to the point we think, well, I, I want to do this for God. I, I want to make this commitment to God. I, I want to. I want to go in this direction. I want to. Do, I want to give. The, and 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 those are fine desires. And at the same time, it may be that we need to listen all the more carefully in the midst of those desires that we know are good, and everyone around us is telling are good, because God may have something different in mind. It came in a time of reflection. He was affirmed by loyal counsel. It expressed the desires of his heart. But yet all that David could see was the temporal horizon, and God was viewing David's life from an eternal perspective, which meant there was something different that God had for David. What When he says, when he laments that God dwells in a tent... The, the word he uses here is this word Elohim for God. And when you use that, well, you're speaking of the majesty of God. It's, it's related to the divine activity of God. It is, it's the personal, intimate name of God. His sovereignty and His majesty and His glory. All of those things are in view. And so what we see, though, it is it's a misunderstanding on David's part that God actually does dwell in that tent. I mean, his majestic dwelling, his sovereign dwelling, his eternal dwelling, his dwelling's the heavens. David's 
concern for God in some ways is a little bit silly. He's feeling bad. Look, I've got a nicer house than God does. But that was far from the truth. See, God dwells in the heavens, and it's from the heavens that God granted David his peaceful dwellings in accord with his promises. It's not a favor that David can return. Listen, he, he's a great, and he's a king, and, he, and he's powerful, but David can in no way improve God's situation. Interesting, the word tent, if you were to look through it in the Old Testament, God's actually very satisfied with what the image portrays. That the heavens are said to be uh, spread out as his tent. In Isaiah 53, what you see is you have this picture, this glorious Easter picture of the suffering servant. And right after 53, you move into Isaiah 54, and what he instructs is that Israel is to enlarge the the tent, it symbolizes that, that God's uh, going to reach people beyond what they know. This revelation of, of God, in the, the, the tent the, the getting increasingly larger. What happens after the servant suffers? David wants to build a house that will be fixed. Only, only a certain number of people would ever be able to fit there in any given time. Maybe that David's more concerned with perception. How does this look to, to every? How does it look about me? How does it look to every everyone around us? If if our God lives in a tent, but God, He was more concerned, not with perception, but with permeation, with His glory going out into all the hearts of His people and beyond. God would not be contained. You know, you go to Exodus chapter 20, you, start, you find that the altar, the, the materials that the altar were made of, natural contents of the earth, actually. It wasn't to be adorned or, or tools used to make it extravagant in a sense. What you find is that God had already created all the natural elements. His altar was to be set up where His glory expanded. The whole earth is His. See, the, one of the applications we can make here, you, you go to the New Testament, and we, we, don't wanna, we wanna be careful not to read the New Testament into the Old Testament, but we can't read the Old Testament without the New Testament now, is that we are temples of the living God. That's what the church is. And, and, and as believers, we're being crafted and shaped and transformed by the work of the Spirit. It's, it's not the adorning works of man that make these temples valuable. It is the work of God. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was his humanity. He came to us as a common man, one approachable. We could see and we could, we could touch and we could, could walk with and, and converse with a, a, a picture of how it was always meant to be God dwelling with his people. See, the answer is going to be, it, was, it wasn't 
a full no. It was just a not yet. David, look, there's going to be a temple built. You're not going to build it. I don't want you to mistake what I'm about to do in your life as though it is based upon any reciprocation, that, that, it, that it is because of anything you've done for me. David, I, I want you to sit. I want you to hear. I want you to be overwhelmed with my grace. In fact, that's what David will do in the second half of this chapter. He'll sit and he'll say, God, who am I? Who is David that you do these things for me? What we see is that God's going to make an eternal covenant with David in response to a temporal request being denied. David's going to respond with gratitude. Another way to say it is God's temporary activity in our life is always with a view of eternal glory. Maybe better said, God's always looking beyond our life as He works in our life. The reply of Nathan, go, go and do it. All that's in your heart is Nathan's natural response. But God does not desire to be paid back. God desires to be enjoyed. See, the passage is ultimately going to be about David understanding that uh, he is being changed by God. There's going to be a corrective that takes place in his heart. God wants David to embrace his grace, not try to repay his blessing. Well, so immediately there in verse 4, that same night, God doesn't even let Nathan sleep on it. That same night, the word of the Lord comes to David, Go and tell my servant David... Thus says the Lord, you, uh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a, a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar. God never had a house built for his presence. His dwelling place had always been the tent. He'd never complained about it. Would you build me a house to dwell in? So it's this question that's going to illuminate who really provides. For who? David is the servant of God. God is the provider of David. It's not the other way around. To, to build, see, God's the builder. He, he built Eve. He, he designed and built the universe. We find in, in Amos chapter 9, Psalm 104, He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And to dwell, He has a majestic dwelling. But this verb's never used of God dwelling on earth. And then later you find out that um, in, you go to the Chronicles, it, it, it's the retelling of, of 
all the stories of the kings. It's after the exile. But you go there and you find that they comment this way. So while David's desire was good and God said, it was a good desire, David. But the reason given there that, that David's not going to build the dwelling for God is because he'd shed too much blood. And then you go to the New Testament and you find that it's, it's the son, the son of David whose blood is shed that's going to rebuild the dwelling, the temple of believers. See, see, we don't want to miss what God's saying about himself here. I mean, it's, just, it's important to not forget. I mean, he's the God who travels with his people. I mean, in all the ups and downs in life, in all the journeys, in all the wanderings, in all the places... God travels with His people. Do His people live in tents? Then so does He. Are they pilgrims on the way to the land of promise? Then then so God's a pilgrim. It's It's why God doesn't want a cedar temple yet. He's... He's about making this place secure for Israel first. Giving His people rest. It's this amazing humility, this amazing downcoming of God to His people. I mean, actually, as we think about God coming down, the, the divine, the majestic, the all-powerful, the sovereign God in humility, coming down to where we are. It's moving when you think about it. There's a story told about uh, a late speaker of the house, Sam Rayburn, back in the 20th century. The uh, a, a teenage daughter of a reporter that Rayburn knew, uh, knew the reporter, knew him fairly well, but he known the reporter uh, from a relationship role as Speaker of the House, but a teenage daughter of this reporter um, was suddenly killed. She died in an accident. And so the next morning, uh, the reporter hears this knocking on his apartment door, and he opened it, and there's Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House, standing there in front of his door. He said, I just came by to see what I could do to help. Well, the reporter, I mean, he's, he's stunned. He's stuttering. He's trying to recover from the surprise and said, oh, you know, I, there's not anything I, I need, uh, you know, there's not anything the Speaker of the House could do, and we're, you know, we're busy about making arrangements. So Rayburn says to him, he says, well, have you had coffee this morning yet? And the reporter said, no, I we haven't had time to do that. He said, well, at least I can make the coffee this morning. So Rayburn just comes into the apartment, goes into the kitchen, begins to make the coffee, and while he's busy making the coffee, the reporter remembered that it was that morning, I mean, stated weekly, I mean, he had a weekly appointment on that particular morning every week in the White House. So he said, he said, Mr. Speaker, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. Well, I was. But I called the president and told him I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. That kind of Humility, that kind of grace. No place, no place God would rather be 
with his people. Well, qu- quickly, I want you to see. So he, he's going to say to David, no, you, you know, you're not going to build me a house. Ultimately, he's going to conclude, David, I'm, I'm going to build you a house. And he's going to rehearse before that, David, here are all the blessings in your life that you're going to experience. And if you pick up in verse 8, he says, Now therefore say to my servant David, Nathan, go say this to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over the people. David, I raised you up. I took you from being a a, a shepherd tending sheep, and I I took you all the way from there, all the way to the the prince over my people. You're the king of Israel. Verse 9, And now I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you, protected you every step of the way, David. And will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Can you imagine David for a moment? Wait a minute. You stop. God, you've got to stop. You've already provided for me. You've already cared for me. I, I live in this palace, in, in this capital, Jerusalem. We brought the, Your presence is here. And I, what do you mean you're going to make my name great? Which echoes back to what God had promised Abraham. Then in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'm not only going to make your name great, I'm making your name great for a purpose, David not just for you, it's for my people. He says in 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I'll plant them so that they dwell in their own place and be distributed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. In the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And then he says, the night, David, I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David was going to build God a house with, you know, four walls and a roof and the insulation and nice carpet, all that stuff. When God says, David, I'm making you a house, what he means is, David, I'm making you, your reign, your name, your lineage, a dynasty. And when the days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom see what it says forever David I am blessing you now I have been blessing you I will continue to bless you and I want you to know Absolutely and certainly for sure, it is not in response to you building me a temple. In fact, it is in response to you doing nothing for me, David. I will lavish my grace upon you, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. talk about this chapter and there's listen we could talk about this chapter for weeks and weeks the new testament spends a lot of time unpacking this 
Davidic covenant. In fact, the New Testament opens up with Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Paul will will refer in his writing to the Romans, he will begin with Jesus, the son of David, the resurrected one. Hebrews will begin the exact same way. We over and over and over hear from the New Testament its comments and its echoes and its it's messianic hope that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's here. It's not because of anything we have done. It's because of who God is. We talk a lot about the Davidic covenant. Here's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about the God of the Davidic covenant. That's what this chapter is about. It's about who God is. Well, and then you'll see these blessings that are going to precede David after his death. And so just look at them quickly. And, and so verse 11, I'll raise up. So one, they'll, they'll build a house. Uh, and, and, uh, his kingdom will be established forever. Verse 13, he'll build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be uh, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's lost on us a little bit because we're, we live after the resurrection. We live after the New Testament's been written. We live after lots of theology has be done, been done. But I want you to know that right here is the first time we hear this language, Father, Son, language. And then he says, listen, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, this is not going to be like what I did with Saul, David. It, it will never, my love, my enduring faithfulness will never go away. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. A couple of things you need to know. So David's line will continue into Solomon. The nation will be divided after Solomon because of Solomon's iniquity. And the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, as it is known, will endure for 400 years years. It is actually in that day and in that time an amazingly enduring dynasty. 400 years. Older than America. 400 year Davidic dynasty. But you know what? In the Old Testament it will seemingly come to an end. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah will find himself being carried away. All the people carried away to Babylon, they will be taken away, they will be ripped out of their land. They will go into exile, spend 70 years in exile till they're allowed to come back into Israel. They'll come back in three waves, and it, but it's never the same. They'll come back as strangers in their own land. They'll come back as servants to other rulers. Yet what God has promised here is that David's throne would reign forever. Now you see the messianic hope of the New Testament. 
the belief and the hope that God is going to do something. God is going to fulfill His promise. God is going to raise up one from the line of David, one of David's own seed, one of David's own children. He will be called the son of David. He will go on the throne. Rest will come back. We will be united. We will be what we were always meant to be, a a forever people of God. Ruled by serving the forever dynasty of David. You see, it's interesting. That is why when Jesus comes, there are many things about him that are misunderstood. So one of the things is, is we find that this, these promises to David, we hear in them, death will not stop these promises. David's going to die, so will Solomon, so will every king after the exile. David will lay down in death, but God will raise up, he will resurrect David's and as God promised Abraham a seed, his seed would be in the land, so he promises David his seed would be the kingship, and David's seed refers to any individual descendant in his house, but it most rightly refers to Jesus to come, who will rule forever. Death won't stop it. What you find is that sin won't stop it either. Three times in verses 14 and 15, you have this to remove, to take away. It's this verb God uses as though it, it builds, there's this bottom to a bottomless pit. Iniquity will be uh, dealt with. The rods of men, the stripes of the sons of men, it will be dealt with, but there's a bottom to it because I'm not taking it away. I, you, I, my faithfulness to you, my love for you never goes away in the midst of that. Faithfulness endures forever. My covenant love endures forever. You see, this is what was misunderstood. So Solomon, he will certainly suffer the consequences of his sin. Every king after Solomon will suffer the consequences of the sin. Every one of them will die a death, this earthly bodily death that is the consequence of sin that has come into the world. But when God sends his son, Son of Mary and the Son of God, this greater Son of David. He actually comes, and we find that there is one seeming problem with all of this. This one has been born uh, sort of in the line of humanity, but outside the line of humanity. He's certainly the uh, human Son of David, but he's also the divine Son of God, which means there is no sin in him. There, there is no ill motive, that there is no iniquity in him. And so for this to be fully fulfilled, what God does is he takes all the iniquity and all the sin, all your sin, all my sin, all the sin of every single one of us throughout history and around the globe and made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness 
in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 12, you will hear, listen, He took our sin, we killed Him. The rod of men, the stripes of the sons of men who did that, we did. We took His life. But God would raise Him up. Death won't stop Him. Sin won't stop Him. And the other thing is you find time won't stop Him. David's dynasty will last 400 years. That's pretty great. Jesus' dynasty, as he picks back up, will last forever. In one sense, he says, David, look, your death will not keep this from being fulfilled. Your sin, sins of your son, will not keep this from being fulfilled. And in fact, David, time, time will not keep this from being fulfilled. I am overwhelming you with grace against every seeming obstacle you might throw at me. And it's not in response to anything that you've done for me. Dale Ralph Davis tells this story as he's commenting on these passages about a guy named Aeneas Sage. He's an 18th century minister in the Scottish Highlands. Which, come on, Aeneas, Aeneas Sage in the Scottish Highlands. How are you not living the dream, right? The description of Sage is that he was this powerfully built man of the cloth. Much like me, you know. And... Uh, so he's a minister, and his intention was he would hold these meetings for catechizing uh, people. He would go to their house, which means he would go to their house, he would catechize them, which essentially means I'm going to make sure we're going to walk through these doctrines of the graces of God, and I'm going to make sure you understand them. He'd go from house to house to house to his congregation. He came to a certain man um, who was well known for what they would call his evil living. Mr. Sage arrived at at this man's door, later asked him if he could come in, and uh, Sage said, I come to discharge my duty to God, to your conscience and to my own. Very Scottish way to say, I'm, I'm here to bring you, you know, God's truth. This guy says, listen, I care nothing for any of those three. Get out of my house or I'll turn you out. The minister simply responded, if you can. See, when you're bigger than everybody else, you can do stuff like that. Turn me out if you can. So there followed sort of a catechism preparatory meeting with this man, said to be a very powerful man. Yet the interchange was over. The man was lying on the floor with a rope around his hands and his feet, and the man was now bound over to keep the peace. And Mr. Sage put it, as Mr. Sage put it, the minister called in the people of the area and taught the shorter catechism. No one, of course, refusing. He tied and bound the guy on the floor and proceeded to teach the catechism. I'm going to hold a catechism meeting in your house and there's nothing you can do about it, nothing you can do to stop it. Listen, God's plan through David's dynasty is simply unstoppable. It overwhelms death, it overwhelms sin, it overwhelms Time, not death, not sin, not time. Listen. Not anything you can do either. 
stop the overwhelming grace of God. See, I, th- I think maybe many of you, it's possible you're here and you never entered, really, you've never entered into a relationship with God because you have seen it as, as something that, a relationship that you had to base on something you could do for God. A house to get ready, a life to get ready. You know, I've got to clean some things up in my life. I've got to, I've got to make some things right. I've got to undo some decisions. I, 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 that, that you have somehow thought this relationship with God demanded or required or, or that you just, listen, I just would feel better about this if I just did some of these things. And, and yet the relationship with God is not based upon anything you've ever done, anything you are doing, or anything you will ever do. It is everything based upon what God has already done. He's trying to build a home for himself in you. And he does that through faith in Jesus alone. It is not anything you do. It is what he does. Trusting God. Receiving his overwhelming grace for what it is. It is the sacrifice of his son Jesus in your place. It's all your sins being laid upon him. And all the punishment and all the condemnation and all the penalty for that, Jesus endures. So you won't have to. There's no house for you to build. There's no life for you to clean up. God comes through his son Jesus to reign in your life and to overwhelm you with His grace. Have you received Him this morning? Have you come to the place and said, all right, I'm not the God of my own life anymore. I don't reign. I need a Savior. I invite you to let go of yourself this morning take hold of the grace of God. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for